Fika with Anika. The word fika is used as both a noun and a verb and is derived from the Swedish word for coffee. The Swedish coffee break is a moment to literally leave work behind. Taken at three in the afternoon, it's not a strategy for multitasking or for fitting in another mini-meeting. It's a chance to relax in the company of colleagues or friends. The key is to pause your day. So, brew up some coffee, grab a seat, and embrace Fika. So, uh, welcome back to another episode of Fika with Anika. Here we are with ANSA resident, Barry Shankman. Thank you for coming back into the studio here with me. I'm um, looking forward to spending another half hour, 45 minutes with you, if we can. Oh no, my pleasure. Oh, yeah. So, um, in our first interview, uh, we talked briefly about uh, Memphis and, and other places in the world that you've lived and, and other experiences. And I want to kind of just drill down a little bit more and focus in on the, uh, the uh, Barry Shankman of Memphis. Uh, I'm really interested in, uh, you know, the aspects of, of the, uh, the influences that you had both as a child and then as, a, as an adult when you started, uh, when, when you owned Stax Records and uh, all of the amazing talent that was in Memphis and what still, you know, what makes Memphis, Memphis. So I'm just going to let you loose on this one. Okay. I'm going to, for me, to say that or to explain it, I have to go back to like being very young because that's how it happened. Uh, my mother had cancer. My father didn't have health insurance. My mother was in the hospital every day for like years. When I was three to five years old, I was raised by the women that cleaned our house. I lived with them except for like on a Saturday and a Sunday when my father would come home like Sunday morning, you know, like 3 or 4 a.m., and I'd spend Sunday with my dad and parts of the week with my family and at home, but with the maid cleaning the house, and then when she went home, I went home with her. So I was this kid running around in a southern 1950s black housing project in love with music and not knowing that there was a, a social or racial divide because the women that loved me and took care of me were the color of the women and people that I was associating with. I just, it, it never, it wasn't part of my reality. So, as a kid and into pre-puberty, I was invited in and taught by jazz musicians like Mose Vincent and Mose Allison and blues musicians like Furry Lewis and Sun House and these great people who were um, librarians of the oral tradition. And I was able to, without knowing it, sit at their feet and have them teach me. Um, to the extent that when I played bass, Grady Williams, who was a pastor, 
used to come pick me up and drive me around because I could take my dad's black Cadillac. And Grady would pretend he was a chauffeur and he would take me to everybody he knew's house. And he would take me in and say, listen to this boy play bass. And as I played bass, they would pull out their pianos. When I say pull out their pianos, you know, like lay it on the kitchen table, this electric, cheap electric instrument. And they would teach me bass lines to play with them. And these were jazz and blues musicians. It was the South. That's how it was done. And I had the honor and pleasure of playing my mom. Um, at that time, you couldn't play nightclubs if you weren't 21. My mom had a, a paper notarized that said I was 19. I wasn't even out of puberty. That, but it said I was 19 and I had my parents' permission and their contact information that I could play in a liquor selling establishment. And the law made me sit in the kitchen during the breaks. I could not sit where the beer was being sold if I were not on the stage or in the area of for the musicians. So I got to watch everybody shoot dice. I got to listen to all the stories being told. I got to see all the fights. I got to see everything. I got to eat fried pork rinds, I got to have hot sauce, and I was one of the kids that was just there. And it was like, oh man. It was like being raised by your dream. So the influences started at the age of three? Yeah, three to five. And then just continued on until well, at, I guess at till like, now. Well, at 12 years old, I had Herman Green and uh, he, Dr. Herman Green, he's a jazz flautist. And uh, in my garage, my father's garage, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I, was, I think I was 12, um, there were a bunch of elderly black blues musicians, myself and Glenn, Glenn and Gary. And we were the three younger suburban, okay, right. people. And we were playing because we were going to be doing jobs in like the VIP club and, and Sam's and all of these old juke joints. And Gary happened to purchase a kilo of marijuana. And it was back when marijuana was bricked and came in like red crepe paper. And I think we paid $90 for, you know, two and a half pounds. And Gary came in, it was two or three o'clock in the morning, we were rehearsing, and there was a knock on the garage door, and it was the police. And as a child, I didn't know any better. I went out and I tried to push the police out of the doorway, <laughs> saying, well, we're, we're rehearsing and we'll turn it down. And, and I remember they, they wouldn't, they found, obviously knew what was going on. They separated us and they took me and made me go inside and I remember they called a lieutenant in and the lieutenant walked up my parents to the second floor bedroom and walked behind me and I had to walk up to my dad sleeping in bed and wake my father up and say, Dad, the police have just arrested me for smoking marijuana in the garage. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
And how old are you at this point? Twelve. Twelve? Yeah. <laughs> um, All right, continue. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not going to go into who my father was in the Memphis, okay? But needless to say, my father walked me back out to the garage and abolished me and, and the black gentleman in the garage and the other players. No one got arrested that night. Everyone went home. The next day, my father drove me to the Shelby County Jail. And after making me get my hair cut by the Shelby County Jail hair barber processor whatever, whatever and I mean good uh, I'm looking at your long hair now so I can imagine <laughs> at 12 you must have been yeah okay yeah and uh, I was told that there were two lists in Shelby County and there was the list of who we were gonna be putting in jail and the list of if they got caught again we'll be going to jail and so that was my that's that was my that was my whole jail was being threatened with right. if you get caught again you're gonna go and everybody that was there including the person they actually wanted to arrest had to go free wow okay so you were scared straight then at 12 but no is no. you're shaking your head back and forth no, no I my my drug of choice became acid Okay. Okay. And right. that was, I don't associate that, that with the blues, but uh, it, it, it's, it's not. Okay. But it, but it, it it's a, it's the glasses, the colors, the things yeah. that I. The, there are several berries, and um, the blues is a foundational heart and soul aspect of me. It's not as mental. It's physical. I see. There is a spiritual berry that's very West Coast Ananza. Okay. Then there is a hallucinogenic berry that's very Peter Max. Oh, I love that. Okay. Hence the glasses. Yes. <laughs> Remind me later to take a picture of you for, for this. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, so uh, later on, when you became uh, then the owner of Stax Records, um, who was who was in your stable? What? what? Oh God! Okay. All right, can I can I go back just a little bit Absolutely. to help? Absolutely. This is right. your your. All this right. is your. So ride. how did I get Stax? Is why who it's important about who's in my stable? Okay. Okay. As a child, having made the transition from 12-something to being raised by this community, like, you know, the community, every village? Yes. Okay. The village then sort of moved me. I was going to, of all schools, White Station High School. But that's in a minute. White Station High School. Okay. South. Memphis, 50s, 60s, one more time, racially segregated, segregated schooling. Yes. I was going to White Station, skipping school every day, taking the 55 Poplar Perkins bus 
from East Memphis, which was suburban Memphis, to downtown Memphis, transferring and going to South Memphis, to Macklemore Street and sitting on the curb in front of Stax Records trying to find and see people because I had heard Green Onions. I don't know Green Onions. It's Booker T and the MG's oh, hit, Green yeah. Onions. Oh, of course. I heard my parents and family owned a ranch. And when I say owned a ranch, it's more like a country club. It had a dance hall and a swimming pool. And in the dance or the community hall, there was a jukebox. And when the jukebox came in 1962, Green Onions was on it. It had just been released. And I heard that song and it was over. I was on the bus every day to, to, to Stacks. And when I heard that song, I said, I'm going to play there. I'm going to own that record company. Okay. Okay. As a kid, William Brown and Robert Jackson, and I know that they were the Mad Lads, a doo-wop group that Stax had, adopted me because I knew them from the project. We would play football as a kid. You know, I was the little white kid that they would throw the football to and then laugh at me. Um, I they one day William saw me sitting out back, and he said, "I'll bring you in." But there are a lot of stories, okay. But yeah, I met everybody. I got to be part of Stacks. My now on the other side of my family was Seymour and Natalie Rosenberg. They manage and they're lawyers and they're music publishers, and they manage Charlie Rich, the country. Okay. Yes. Cy Rose knew I had this thing about Stax. He took me to Stax and let me record Blue Moon as like Frog Boy Barry, you know, in a froggy voice when I was a kid. Okay. But William and Robert, they taught me. They taught me the music. They let me sit and watch people record. They let me hear what was going on. And I was at the same time, and I, I hate to but that's how my life was, it was so divine. I also was friends with Knox and Jerry Phillips, Sam Phillips' kids, because my grandparents lived on tall trees, and Elvis had just bought his new house on Audubon Drive, and Sam and Knox and Jerry lived right around the corner. So again, playing football, I got to play with Sam and Knox. So I would spend time with Knox and, at Sam's studio son oh my god so do you do you, do you understand yeah. see to me that's what how i grew up it's not and it's not because you you were p playing bass or guitar it was just because they no, were neighborhood kids yeah so i was so i was sitting when elvis died i was sitting in sam's office with Knox watching tv that's how we found out elvis had passed away Knox and I were buddies, our buddies. But you understand it's not, so to me it's just the way I grew up, it's just part of life, it's not a big deal. And the only reason it's a big deal is because we're talking about it. 
it, but it is a big deal, Barry. I know you're very humble about it, but but it, right, but it was you know for you it was everyday life, and you know for people who are admirers of of uh, these great musicians, you know to sit and listen to these these uh, stories that you have. Uh, I, we're very lucky to have you <laughs> in this town. Thank you. Yeah, um, I I consider myself I consider Memphis magic. It's it's magic. It's it's my Disneyland, and I left in the seventies. So anything that happened after the seventies on got nothing to do with me. But up until the seventies, I was Memphis's child, and the city of Memphis raised me. And I was, and when I say that, I literally mean it. I'm not being uh, all flowery. And, and forgive me for lack of words. I really, you know. Mm-hmm. However, it's it's how it. Memphis is the mud, and the mud is in me. That is a wonderful quote. Are you or someone in your household on life support or other life-saving machinery like oxygen? If so, please contact the Anza Electric Cooperative Office at 951-763-4333 so that your account can be flagged. If your account is flagged, you will be contacted in advance of a planned outage. Since most power outages are unplanned, please be sure to have adequate backup on hand to last several hours. Anza Lions Club Garlic and Bacon Festival Fundraiser. Bring your best recipe for the many cook-offs. Saturday, May 25th at the Lions Gym Canafield. That's 39551 Kirby Road. There will be garlic and bacon cook-offs, contests and prizes, vendors, a kid zone, music, raffles and more. Garlic or bacon? The cook-off categories are soup or salad, appetizer, main course meat, main course pasta, and desserts. It's $5 per entry. Enter one or all categories. Send an email to Anza Valley Lions Club at gmail.com for a cook-off form and any questions that you might have. The Kid Zone will have all sorts of activities. Bring the kiddos for the Kid Zone for face painting, balloon animals, the petting zoo, pony rides, a bouncy house, dunk tank, games, and more. Reserve vendor spots now. Vendors only. Any size space will be $10 until May 18th. After May 18th, vendor spots will be $15. Entering the cook-off? Cook-off participants will get your vendor spot for only $5. Come on down for something different and something fun for all ages. For more information about the Garlic and Bacon Festival, donations for raffle prizes, becoming a vendor, or volunteering at the event, Mimi can be reached at phone number 760-637-9173. The website is anzavalleylionsclub.org. Email to anzavalleylionsclub at gmail.com. The Garlic and Bacon Festival, Saturday, May 25th. K-O-Y-T-L-P, ANZA, your public radio station. 
Welcome back to Fika with Anika. Why do you think Memphis has such an influence? What is it about Memphis that that why why would people gravitate towards Memphis or or people who grew up there? Why do they become such musicians and such an influence? Because I mean, you know that the the Memphis of the '60s influenced the '70s, the '80s, the Eric Clapton's, and the you know we oh. just go on and on. All the people that that say that it was, that was their influence. So what is it about Memphis? That is just the magic okay. or the mud. Okay. What the Mississippi River's the mud. That's where the mud comes from. And the reason Memphis is magic is because here's New Orleans, Memphis is half here's Memphis, here's St. Louis, and here's Chicago. Okay. You can track music mm. and all types of the American genre of music from Louisiana at the mouth of the Mississippi River to Chicago. You have Scottish, German, French, Irish coming to Louisiana. As you come up the river, it moves with the slaves being sold into southern cotton industry to answer and call blues so that they could work in a rhythmic method. As you move up to St. Louis, you get those who are escaping the burden of work and finding their first taste of freedom, yet still influenced by the stigma of slavery. And then as you hit Chicago, you have that independence of the electric blues, which is strong, right? Because <laughs> you, this is my city. This is my music, and I don't care. Now that's Barry's interpretation of the American genre. That's not okay. I understand. Okay, but. You're asking me why Memphis? Because of the river. And why Memphis? Because it's uniquely positioned within the psyche of the United States in its growth. That it wasn't south and it wasn't north and it had all those influences of the west because at the time of the Civil War that was the west frontier was right after the bridge. So you had North, South, Memphis didn't go Southern, didn't go Northern, actually in the Civil War, the Battle of Shiloh was like 20 miles outside of Memphis, 60 miles, whatever. But I spent a long time in Shiloh Battle though. Um, but that's why. Okay. So back to your stable of talent at Stax. Um, Name drop. Okay. Well, I worked with David Porter, Isaac Hayes, um, Otis Redding. I worked with, I did not own or produce, okay? Um, I actually just worked with. Um, Teeny Hodges, who wrote Love and Happiness for Al Green and is mm -hmm. the guitar player on that. Love and Happiness, the intro to, you know, that famous intro. Uh, 
the the Barquet's Soul Finger. Um, God, uh, Eddie Floyd, um, Carla Thomas, Rufus Thomas, um, Quo Jr., which was the first black punk band. Roland Robinson was Eddie Floyd's bass player, and he played with Jimi Hendrix in London um, when they were first getting done. Roland, that was his band, Quo Jr., let me think of. There, there are a lot. A lot of the talent that came through Stacks when I had the facility really didn't have anything to do with me either. I just owned it. So you didn't produce? Oh, no. I, oh, oh, okay. I, okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. telling you who I produced, but okay. a lot of it was not me. It was just I made it possible. I see. Okay, and the berry magic to make it possible. Okay, and that was where we were going, and I got sidetracked. Yes, that's how I owned Stacks. Is Stacks was supposed to be owned by several other people, and the day it was sold, I was warned off of buying Stacks by those people. I was told it was not to be mine. I needed to leave the courthouse now. There was a forty-five caliber shell left on my fireplace the night before I bought Stacks when I woke Ooh. up that morning and someone walked me over we're sitting in the federal court building while all of the bankruptcy sale was taking place and one of the gentlemen that told me Stax wasn't going to be mine took me by the shoulder and walked me over to the windows and we're up you know several stories looking down on the Mississippi River and the bridge and there's a island in the middle of the Mississippi River called the Mud Island and he pointed down to the mud island. He said, "You know, I own that mud island. Mud island. It's now like Harbor Town in Memphis. It's got huge, it's restaurants, and it's what it is. Is it's an island in the middle of the Mississippi River that the bridge, both bridges, span." so that you can look down on it. So, so this shoot. gentleman was an influencer. Uh, he owned, um, I, there was a meat company called King Cotton Meats. So yes, he was an influencer. He suggested that I not purchase it because it had been arranged that they own it. Oh. Now, what people didn't know is that one part of the community who really wanted to own stacks and who deserved to own stacks couldn't. And that part of the community thought, well, if we can't have it, we need someone who we can deal with to have it. So, perhaps, and I get, not even perhaps, let's just go for it, okay. So, Ricky Ireland had been appointed by the federal courthouse to appraise the stacks equipment to place a monetary value on it that it should not be sold for a penny less than. Ricky Ireland and I were buddies. Ricky Ireland and I had worked together. He was Sam Phillips' technician. He took care of Sun Studios. He took care of Ardent Studios. He took care of American Studios the three independent record companies and studios in the 50s and 60s of Memphis. 
We're talking Bobby Gentry. We're talking Elvis Presley. We're talking Johnny Cash. We're talking everybody from rock and roll to country and western Charlie Pride to good old-fashioned soul and blues. And so these people couldn't buy stacks. But this little Jewish kid who played bass, loved music, knew everybody in the community, and knew everybody not as, hey, what can I get from you, or what can I do with you, or how are you going to make me famous, but knew everybody because, hey, can I eat dinner here tonight because my mom's not coming home? Or, Barry, do you want to stay for the weekend? Or, Knots and I just came in from playing football, so call your mom and see if you can spend the night. So everybody knew me as me. And also everybody knew me as how crazy I was. I was the kid driving Maseratis down Poplar at five in the morning. Okay. Okay. It's <laughs> a secret it, side of Barry coming up. Yeah. I mean, but they knew, they knew me. They knew the good, the bad, the ugly, the, the right, okay? Yes. So they knew me. And basically, um, I knew that it would take a nickel on the dollar and that it would take $50,000 cash minimum, but it would take 50000 and this was 1970-something, 50072 take $50,000 cash and that you had to have it to make the bid. You couldn't just write a check. You could you could give, uh, give a bank draft or you could give a, I couldn't. I had $50,000 cash with me. My partner, Leonard, who owned a lightweight pharmacy in Memphis, and he was a little bitty orthodox Jewish guy with gray hair and a little beard and very quiet, had $50,000 cash in a brown paper bag. So come 4.50, the afternoon that court was going to close, and everybody knew that uh, Al Bennett and Dream Records had bought the publishing, the existing publishing, and had cut a deal to pay for it with the royalties that he would make. And because he had Dream Records or Cream or whatever it was, uh, he could pay it, and they worked a deal. But the equipment and the name and everything... Nobody bought because everybody bid under $50,000 thinking because stacks had gone under and it didn't include the real estate that they could just bid whatever nobody cared about it. So the judge didn't do it and I didn't say anything until it was too late to get money for anybody. And at like whatever time it was, in my mind it's 4.50, it's probably 4 o'clock or whatever. I bid $50,000 cash and nobody could beat me. Lovely. And you're sitting there with the, with the money in your brown bag. Right. Yes. We, couldn't, we could not risk that someone could talk to the bank and stop the bank, you know, of or course. create a problem that we couldn't withdraw the money or that. We needed to make the bid and have the cash there because the cash in hand outweighed anybody 
saying well, I'll bid more than that, but it was by end of court today. Well, I must say that's awfully gutsy, seeing that the night before that there was a 45. I was a kid. You just didn't understand the the uh, gravity of the message. I didn't care. They they weren't okay. going to do anything to me. Yeah. And and yes, that's big time. Excuse me. Yes. Um, I mean, I lost stacks, okay? And I lost stacks because, yes, the reason I got it was the reason I lost it. Mm -hmm. I was a kid. I didn't understand the other side of it, the politics of it. But you have to understand, when people think Stacks Records, they think Barry Jenkins. Well, that's a good thing. I'm yes. really happy. I, yeah. I am proud of... I am proud that I was part of the legacy. When I was at the museum, I didn't realize people even knew who I was until I went through the museum. I had never seen the Stacks Museum. I had never known. And, you know, I last year... Leonard passed away, and when Leonard passed away, actually this time, about this time, March, I think I was in Memphis, um, I got, he left me all the masters, the original masters from like David Porter, Isaac Hayes, all of those yes. tunes, he left me all the masters, I had access to them again, I, instead of taking them out and re-releasing them, I gave them to Stacks Museum for How generous this, of you. Well, they I gave it to the community because yes. Stacks has a, a school, and okay. they have children that they give. You know, so I gave it for scholarships. So okay. the money that comes from those sales goes to supporting the community. Oh, how wonderful! And you know that the musicians would have liked it that way too. It was a community. I was part of that community. So when people say you had stacks or you, no, I was just, I was just part of it. Um, lucky part. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So um, I, I wasn't aware that there was an actual museum and a school. Oh no! It's it's big time. I mean. Um, I'm getting ready to show you like a list of all the stuff I sure. donated, but I I got to turn this on. Yeah. Uh, but I, what I want to show you is like yeah the museum. Matter of fact, for my birthday this year, on the when you see a picture of stacks, there's a big like uh, motion picture uh, thing. On it, it says Happy Birthday, Barry Shankman. Happy 68th birthday, Barry Shankman. I'll show you that one, too. Okay. That was for my birthday this year. But, oh, how lovely. Did you go You did you go back to Memphis to celebrate I your went, 68th? No. I went back to Memphis last year to donate all the tapes. And during that time, the girl that went with me to purchase stacks, the day I purchased stacks, Pat Rayner, who's a photographer, she's a music photographer, uh -huh. had a... Had a uh, exhibition at the Museum of Memphis Musicians. So it was, I got to see a lot of people I hadn't seen in a long time. She had a picture of Teeny that they had exhibited and uh, me. I had never seen a picture of me playing bass at Stacks. But yeah. 
Do you want me to put these on so you can see them? I would like, yes, I'd uh, like to see you with your, uh, to the audience, um, I'm taking pictures of Barry right now to uh, upload for our social media, and he's got this wonderful rainbow-colored glasses, and that's how I think of Barry, <laughs> as um, a kaleidoscope. Uh, you are just so, um, there's, like you said, there's so many facets of you, and Stax is only one part of your life, and um, you, I know you, you don't make much of it, but I think the, the rest of the world, obviously, since as there's a museum now, and a when you say a Stax school, is that a music school? Oh no, it's know. it's it's like a community school that's sponsored by Stax, and Stax has school buildings on the grounds now. This is like a let me see if I can. This is a partial list of some of the songs I donated to Stax. I'm looking at your um, at that's, your phone here. Yeah. And Eddie Floyd, Isaac Hayes, David Porter, uh, Sam and Dave, Albert King, Otis Redding, some promos there, Al Jackson Jr., Judy Clay, uh, the Black Society, the Jays, Bar Hayes. Now, some of these I don't know offhand. There's like a, a recollection yeah. of them, but, but I don't... It's obviously not part of the, the popular music anymore. But um, William Bell. But, oh yeah. Yeah, he was. Oh, never mind. Yeah. that's okay. But, but how yeah. how wonderful to to have donated that to the community. Yeah. Well, it was theirs, and and yes. and um, I really don't need. Boy, that's not the way to say that. I really am happy with the income I have now. There is nothing I want materialistically that warrants me taking money or making money okay how wonderful yes well that's the laid-back life in anza <laughs> you know yeah. all we need is a beautiful sunset and a beautiful sunrise and and some memphis barbecue and uh <laughs> i and i make the, i make good memphis barbecue i know you sure. met, i asked you that in the last interview and i've been uh Wondering when I'm going to be invited over to the, to enjoy it. <laughs> I am I am very I am very stingy, but I will I promise you, the next bring time, bring me a doggy bag, would you? The next time I I cook, I will have you come by. Oh, I would love that. But there's yes. Oh, a picture of the barbecue. <laughs> I love my barbecue. <laughs> oh, could you send that to me? <laughs> Do you mind if I put it up on social oh, no, media? No, that's fine. Um, but when I remember, I told you I talk to my critters every morning. Yeah. Oh, there's your squirrel. That's oh. bushy. Okay. Okay, and I have hummingbird. You know. And other birds. Oh, finches and, mm -hmm. and hummingbirds and everything. But yeah, it it's the, that's my morning ritual. Is they come sing. I play music. They sing with it. I drink coffee. We will watch the sunrise. So when you say you play music, you're strumming your guitar or your bass, or, it, um, or are you whistling I, a tune? No, I I either am playing guitar. I have a, an old Gibson I play a lot, or I am listening. I listen to music a lot. So it, either way, it just depends on the day. Usually, I will take my guitar with me, and um, 
I that's another thing. It's like um, Luther Dixon Dickinson. He's in a group called North Mississippi All Stars. They did a movie for Disney called Holes with um, I don't know that guy's name. Oh, I know that movie. Yeah. Yes, the Holes. music for that movie. Okay. That that's Luther and his brother Cody. Luther, oh. I gave Luther a Revox tape machine when he was three years old, and he and his daddy walked through stacks with me before I bought it the night before. His daddy's Jim Dickinson. He did the song Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones. Uh, Jim also and I played forever together. But um, So have you produced it? Are you, would I know the Barry Shankman from a song or a record? Or are you a, a studio musician? Um, oh, yeah. I need that picture too. Okay, that's, that's my gorgeous. 1952. That now that what I was why we got on and in my mind you know yeah. uh, why uh, we got there. Baron just showed me a picture of his. Uh, my daily guitar. Yeah, that's a Gibson. That's a 1952 Gibson ES140, and they didn't make a lot of them. And it's also a three quarter size, so it's a small guitar. And I found that in a pawn shop. God, it's 1972, and that's one of the few things that have made it through all the moves. Oh, yes. Um, Back to Luther, yes, Jim. Uh, I gave Luther the Revox. Luther would fall asleep under my console when we built Toad, which was Stacks. Uh, when Jim and I were working, would you know Barry from any songs? Uh, you would know me from a lot of the stuff I played on and stuff. I throughout my career, be it music, film, TV, whatever have been paid major money not to have my name on things. <laughs> that seems counterintuitive somehow. The people that paid me yes. knew exactly who I was and what I could do. The people that couldn't pay me, I didn't care if they knew who I was or not. It didn't matter to me. I just soon be able to walk in and have a hamburger. Okay. Yeah. I did a film with Robert De Niro um, for Universal. Oh, damn, I can't think. Um, Universal gave me a Rolls Royce. <laughs> my jaw just dropped, okay. That's how I met Betty. She was. I hired You're her right. to be my chauffeur. So you married the uh, the hired help? Well, it was, you know, me and hired help. Uh, but um, I got a picture of it somewhere too. But yeah, um, I don't know where I was. I get, I, get, I get, sorry, I'm so scared. No, that's fine. Yeah. Um, I try. Not we were to talking know. about, um, you know, would we know Barry Shank? Yeah, yes. yes, you would. Yeah. Uh, I so mean, Frank. Uh, De Niro and, and oh, okay. Universal and the Rolls Royce. Right. And, and Cape Fear. That was it. Oh. That was the name of the movie. Cape Fear. And I got into trouble because we were at the screening and we had just shot the scene where he bites the guy's ear off. Yeah. And I had only seen it when we were shooting it. I hadn't seen it on film yet. And he bit the guy's ear off ear off and the President of Universal and all these people are sitting behind me, and I yell, "Oh!" 
And <laughs> I have to make note of where I have to uh, edit I'm sorry, this. That's okay. I got into trouble. I got called into the Black Tower for that one. Oh. The Black Tower is a very tall building. Yes, I know. Universal lot. Yeah. Yeah, we used to call it the Black Tower. So, yeah, and my name's not on that film. No. Uh, I did a movie for Disney called The Rocketeer. I did another movie called Excalibur. I've heard of that one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've done, I did a lot of restorations. I know you know my restorations because I restored Gone with the Wind. I restored Maltese Falcon. Right, right. And we're not talking about about the musical aspects here. We're talking about about the film. I I restored. Yes. I took the negative shot in camera given to me and I spent years learning that craft and I restored the negatives so they could make new IPs which are inner positives and at that point they could strike new negatives to release the films so when you see Gone with the Wind on TV that's me when you see Maltese Falcon and it looks like it's brand new and all that that's me when you see National Velvet that's me when you see, um, oh man, the, the list goes on and on. I did. Um, you, you probably were prolific. Films yeah. During my career as a film restoration or colorist is mm. the term they call me. Um, but yes, same thing in music. That's where I learned that. Didn't matter if my name was on. When I was a little bitty kid. I was thrilled the first time I saw my name on something. It just, it validated me. I guess as I found that I didn't really do it for the validation, I did it because I was just bored and I liked having stuff mm-hmm. draw me into it and learn about it and then see if I could you know, solve the problem. Fantastic. All right. Well, Barry, I think... Uh, Is that it? Y- yeah, we've got 43 minutes on here, so I think it's about time <laughs> that, okay. that, that, to end the interview. So thank you very much for coming in again. And I look forward to uh, having you back in at a later time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope I didn't, like, it's okay. We got three beeps, bleeps, okay. so that's not bad. Thank you for joining us for this week's Cup of Fika with Anika. Tune in Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and a replay on Sundays at 1 p.m. If you have any questions or comments for me or my guests, please send an email to programming at koyt971.org and put Fika in the subject line. Enjoy the rest of your day.